2022, I got diagnosed with ADHD. That was a bit like, whoa. But what it allowed me to do was, and I feel really, really fortunate to be in this position, my job has been, for the past seven years, using an understanding of psychology and applying it to people within the workplace to help them be more productive. Hello, and welcome to Umicast, the podcast about business and entrepreneurship, which will help you to do more and go further. In this episode, I'm joined by founder of Brighty People, Becca Brighty. Becca provides workshops and consultancy on topics like neurodiversity, workplace confidence and resilience, all of which are informed by her wealth of lived experience and qualifications. So whether you're looking to understand and improve yourself or bring out the best in others, maybe you're teetering on the edge of burnout or just curious about how people's minds work, this is an episode you don't want to miss. Let's start off, I suppose, by introducing yourself. What is it that you do? Who is Becca Brighty? Okay, so um, my name is Becca Brighty and I am a business psychologist and a mindset coach focusing on confidence, resilience and neurodiversity coaching, particularly ADHD coaching. Brilliant. And I know that that sort of came from your own personal journey um, in, in a couple of various things. So would you mind taking us through a bit of what that is? Uh, yeah, so um, I try to be concise, which is something I struggle with. But um, so basically, um, in terms of probably, so I worked in um, sales for many years and just really didn't like it. So I went back to university and studied business psychology, um, which I absolutely loved. And then I went on to be self-employed because pre-COVID, there wasn't very much work in the Northeast for organizational psychologists um which is another word for business psychologists and i couldn't move down south because of we didn't have this virtual world at that point i couldn't move down south and that was where all the work was so then i ended up being self-employed for that reason um and a lot of it was really great um but after a certain amount of time, I got into coaching and then I went and did a coaching qualification. And from that coaching qualification, I got, you get lots of coaching. When you do a coaching qualification, everyone needs to practice on each other. And so it was through that I realized that I had imposter syndrome. And learning that and getting it cured, cured if you can ever cure imposter syndrome or changing the way I thought and understanding the underlying beliefs behind a lot of the things I did, um, was completely life-changing for my life, for my business and for my experience of work. And so for me, that was like, oh my goodness, I've had this thing all these years that is making me do um, all these coping mechanisms. So a lot of people with imposter syndrome, they're massively. So for me, over-preparing was a massive problem. So I would go and do a presentation that I knew really well, but because I didn't feel like, oh, I am an expert or I am a person who should be talking about this, I would massively over-prepare. I wouldn't apply to do like tenders or something because I think well I'm not good enough for that and um, it's, I'm going to have to spend 50 hours doing this tender because I'm not really whatever it is that I actually am um, and so it was like a massive light bulb moment and also like oh my goodness I've wasted so much time learning about that and so then from that I then started to um, a lot of the people who I would end up really helping were people who had confidence issues and imposter syndrome because I could really resonate with it but not that you need to as a coach have had an experience but it just meant that I could I, I could recognize the things that people were saying when they were saying things like oh, I'm not I'm not really ready to go for that promotion and I'm saying okay but are there other people who have got the same experience in that role yeah yeah there's loads of people with way less experience but I just couldn't do it and you just start to recognize things that you've thought yourself in other people. Um, so then I started helping lots of people with imposter syndrome and confidence issues. Um, so that's where the imposter syndrome and the confidence stuff comes from. Um, and then the resilience work is from, um, I, in COVID, I had a massive burnout. Um, like really, I never know what to call it, whether it was a burnout, a mental breakdown. Um, but in January um, 2021, I just, became really anxious, <laughs> excuse me, um, really anxious, 
couldn't sleep, was jumping all the time when people came um, in the room. It was just a really awful, awful time. And at the time when we went into COVID, I had a five-month-old baby. And when we went back to work as a self-employed person, it was just a bit... Every, COVID was crazy for everyone, but as a self-employed person, especially someone who was probably still a bit... felt a bit impostery, oh, I, I should know how to do this and all the new stuff we were trying to navigate. It was just too much. And then... So I had this burnout. And for me, at that time, it was a real sh- shock because as a business psychologist and someone who uses psychology to understand how to manage yourself in the workplace, to get burnout was like eh, how have I let this happen like I do all the good stuff I go on walks every day especially in COVID that was all there was to do um I talk about my feelings like I've got a really good support system I'm really comfortable chatting about my feelings to my mum my friends my husband um I go in the bath and I drink glasses of wine in the bath and do face masks I don't understand like how how is this how am I in got, got into this situation so then I did a lot of um I moved to the Lake District um for three months and Took some step tight, a bit of a step back from my business and focused on getting better. And then as a result of that, really wanting to understand what resilience really was. Because if it wasn't everything that I'd been doing as somebody who thought that they understood that as a concept and was doing all the good stuff and was a coach and was receiving coaching and how, what does it actually really mean to be resilient? And so I spent loads of time and money on like therapy, coaching, like researching the topic and then I created a model from that um, and basically the, the the model's about from a workplace perspective there's certain factors um, that organize, things organisations can do to help people be resilient things like psychological safety and diversity equality and inclusion and giving people autonomy and control over their work as much as possible but then there's lots of things you can do as an individual and so the model works on like three different areas. Um, so self-care, which I view as, um, and this might be a bit of a controversial statement, as the least important aspect of resilience. It's not the least important aspect of well-being. If you're in like a well-being crisis, self-care is absolutely what you should be focusing on first. But if you're wanting to build long-term resilience, the two main things that you should be looking at is self-awareness. So things like your strengths, your weaknesses, things that um, cause you to have an emotional reaction, your boundaries or your lack of boundaries. Um, what gives you energy? What drains you? Who gives you energy? Who drains you? All that kind of stuff is going to be really important for your resilience. But then the most, I would argue, the most important thing when it comes to resilience is your mindset. So within the within the model, the things that I tend to focus on when I do resilience training is um, confidence, um, self-compassion, growth mindset, um, locus of control, which um, is not a term that many people know about. So locus of control is this idea of where you... Where do you attribute um, control over your life, basically? So if you have an external locus of control, you think anything good that happens to you is caused um, by luck, but also anything bad. So like, just say if I'd been late today and I had an external locus of control, I would be like, because the traffic wasn't... Um, wasn't in my favor or or the sat nav was a bit of a disaster or whatever um but if something really good happened like i did really well on a test i would also say i got lucky on the questions mm. and then an internal locus of control is about oh, i was late because i didn't set off with enough time um but also i did really well on that test because i tried really hard and there's a lot of research around how that contributes to resilience and success in life um and then the final thing is how comfortable you are with change so all those aspects of your mindset will then, if you have, like, if you're really good in all those areas or if you just aim to improve in those areas, you're, you'll see resilience massively improve. That's a resilience area. And then the ADHD and the neurodiversity stuff came because um, in May last year, I so 2022, I got diagnosed with ADHD. And then... That was a bit like whoa, but also like oh yeah, like a sixth sense moment. I would like describe it. Moment. Yeah, absolutely. Of looking back through your life and be like, oh, that's why I do this. That's why this happened. That's why this has been complete uphill struggle. But what it allowed me to do was 
and I feel really, really fortunate to be in this position, my job has been for the past seven years using an understanding of psychology and applying it to people within the workplace to help them be more productive. So I could just use that exact same thing I've been doing for the past seven years for myself to be like, okay, so I have this understanding of this condition that I have and how my brain works then I can learn about it and I can look at myself and get coaching and I can think, okay, so this is what my brain does. This is what I need to achieve. What's the best way to do that? So that's what I've done for myself. And then it's also what I help people with, with coaching is people who are often diagnosed later in life, which is clusters um, anytime after you leave university. Because if you know about, if you don't know about when you're in education, it's a whole different thing. Um, to understand what does that mean for them? What's it meant historically? What does it mean now? And how can they use the understanding of ADHD and themselves to then be more productive at work, at home, be happier, accept a bit. For a lot of people, it's like, oh my goodness, I'm like 50 or I'm 40 and I've had this all this time. Like that's a massive, a massive shock and a big thing to deal with. If, especially if you don't have somebody like a coach to guide you through it. Yeah, brilliant. Well, so we'll we'll have a look at sort of those three <laughs> topics in piece by piece because there's obviously a lot to to cover there. Um, so your ADHD diagnosis did that mm. sort of come as a result of sort of other things um, like the the other your burnout things like that, uh, or or was it something else? How did you come to discover basically that you should maybe go and, and see if this is something that you had? Um, so there was, it was like a few different things that converged all at once. Mm. So um, I've got a friend, um, she's, she's another business psychologist based in Newcastle called Michelle Minikin. And she um, did a piece for the Sunday Times that was called um, something like when it's not um, early onset menopause and it's actually adult ADHD. And I read it and I was like, oh my goodness, it's like my life. And then um, around a similar time, I have got also got a back problem. And there's a company called Celebrate Difference based in Morpeth who um, help neurodivergent people with a scheme called Access to Work, which is where the government will give people with um, disabilities, mental or physical, um, funding to level, to even the level, to give them a level playing field with able whatever the opposite of disabled is, um, with the rest of the world, basically. And it's an amazing scheme. My sister told me about it. They had, um, from the perspective of me having a back, this back problem that has caused me a lot of problems over the years for work. So I started speaking to them about that. And then some of the stuff I was saying, they were like, a lot of the people who come to us because they've got ADHD, I live how you live and describe the things that you describe and all the things that you've put into place to help yourself. These are things that people are, are doing who have ADHD. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and so that was one of the things. Then also um, around that time, so my sister got dis diagnosed with dyspraxia and dyslexia when she was at university um, and then never really thought about it again until... Um, she was well never looked into it in a lot of depth until she didn't couldn't pass a driving test but that's a different story but basically she's then set up a business now um where she consults for businesses about neurodiversity so she was looking into all of that and then she said to me i think you've got this thing called erlen syndrome and i think i've got it so what erlen syndrome is it's why i've got these glasses on um it is a condition that affects how your brain processes light <laughs> and um so 14% of the population have it and 50% of neurodivergent people have it. And so she said to me, oh, I think you've got it because you basically, I have to wear sunglasses all year round. And my car is um, a very unique version of the Nissan Duke in that it's been banged into so many different bollards, trees, <laughs> railings, walls. It's like re a new shape. And, um, and, and so I struggle with spatial awareness. And so these are two of the symptoms and it shows up differently for everyone. And then I got to, I got a screening and then I got, got found out I had that. And the fact that that is so prevalent within neurodivergent people, I was like, mm, okay. And then I started at the same time listening to this podcast called, is it, um, is it my ADHD? Um, and every topic, every episode is a different topic. So it's about ADHD and friendship. People talking about ADHD and owning a business. People talking about ADHD and education and every episode 
was like, oh, this is me, this is me, this is me. And then in true ADHD hyperfocus fashion, I started like obsessively just researching it and researching it and researching it. And like more things, I would just be like, oh, it's like me, it's like me. And then eventually I was just got to the point where I was like, I'm just going to go for a diagnosis because I'm going to become like a PhD level expert and it's completely overtaking mm. my whole life. I just need to know because I was doing all the quizzes online, which also had like medium level indication. And then when I did the, I just paid for a private diagnosis because the waiting list on the NHS are insane. Um, and then that's how I found out that I did have, um, so I've got inattentive ADHD so you can have something called inattentive ADHD you can have hyperactive ADHD or you can have combined which is inattentive and hyperactive and what are the what's the difference between sorry just before we want is it is the light okay oh the light's fine because I've got my glasses on if I didn't it would have been a nightmare (laughs) um just what are the differences there between those two so the inattentive is more about um focusing on things and paying attention to detail Mm -hmm. so for example when I got here I just pressed the bell on the door. Right, right. And then I was like waiting there and I was like, oh, I'm going to like look and I'll phone him and see where he is. And then I like looked at the thing and again, it says press two for Umi and three for whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's because I just don't pay attention to stuff. <laughs> and, but now I know. And whereas before it would be like, oh, I'm so stupid. Whereas now I'm like, oh, right, there's another example. Um, and the hyperactive is more those people who can't sit still and they're constantly fidgeting and they're shaking their legs mm. and that kind of stuff. Um, and then the combined is where you've just got both. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So I suppose the the there's a, um, a key thing I suppose that jumped out there when you were talking was like how important self awareness was because that's how you were able to pick up on all of these signs that made you think oh maybe I have this mm-hmm. and it was a recognizing yourself in all of these other people or sort of scenarios that have. ADHD in your case um, and I suppose that applies across sort of um, being neurodivergent in whatever form that takes because there's obviously there's different types as well mm-hmm. isn't there um, so how important is is that in uh, I suppose not only recognising that you yourself might have it but then putting steps in place to support you or others in that scenario mm-hmm that was a so, really roundabout way of asking that. But. So so the question is, how important is self-awareness for changing your own behaviour and supporting other people supporting around others. you? Yes, yes. So, yes, really, really important and really, really difficult. So um, I would argue self, one of the brilliant things about coaching is it brings the, the things that you're unaware of to the surface. So even a lot of the time we'll have things that we know about subconsciously, even if they're going round and round in our head, just saying them out loud. A lot of the time for people brings them in like more to life um but it's really hard to to see things in yourself um so it's more when you like because all these you only know your experience of your own life and also a lot of people are neurodivergent a lot of people in their family will be so they just think that's normal so like me and my sister and my dad we booked all to go to the theater and then we put my sister bought the tickets and then it passed and then like six weeks later I emailed a message in the group chat saying did we book some sort of theatre thing and then my dad was like oh do you mean this dance, this music thing we're going to and I was like no no I'm sure there was there was something that we were going to go to in um, Newcastle maybe we didn't book the tickets and then I, ser- like, I searched in the emails from my sister and then I sent them a screenshot and they were like oh yeah we, we, like, we didn't go to that oh man and, and then, but for us, like, that's just normal. Yeah. But to other families, they'd be like, eh, how can three people who all plan to do a thing together and paid for it not remember to go? So the, the, so it's, it just, when you, and, and birds of a feather flock together. So a lot of the people who I've clicked with instantly when I've met them, who I've then stayed friends with, they're people who are now getting diagnosed so you just, the people who you're comparing yourself, they're all doing the same, being forgetful, being late, t- over sh- massively oversharing. Um, so so it's difficult to kind of see how you're, whether that you are different in, and that you might fit a certain diagnosis. And then in terms of making changes, so even for me, there's every day I realise something new about how how I need to live my life so 
the thing about um, one of the things for people with ADHD um, that's a massive, massive important thing that I think everyone should know about is executive function challenges. So um, executive function is um, doing things. I don't know how a better way to describe it, but so it, it's made up of um, activating. Um, so that's making yourself do things, focusing. So focusing on the things you need to do. Um, your energy, um, managing your emotions, your memory. So your working memory, your day to day, I'm doing things um, memory. And um then monitoring your actions or being able to be aware of what, of being self-aware basically of what you're doing. People with ADHD have up to a 30% delay in executive function. And so if you think of everything that you're doing on a daily basis is in effect a third again as difficult, it's not quite as clear cut as that, mm. but everything you do pretty much. So just whereas before I knew about this, it would be like, oh, on my lunch break, I'll just pop out to Asda and like quickly get the food shop. The amount of executive function that's involved in driving, that's involved in parking, that's involved in going into Asda and walking around all the different aisles and remembering all the things that you need, then going to the till, having remembered to bring some wave form of payment, having a conversation with the cashier who's talking to you whilst you're trying to pack the bags then putting all the things back in the trolley taking it back remembering where you've parked your car remembering where you need to take the trolley back to and then driving back home I'm just going to quickly do that on my lunch break you're just massive like you're just taking away so much of your executive function that you then won't have for work so for me now with that knowledge I plan my day based on the amount of executive function every task is going to take me Mm. So I would never, ever now just pop to Asda well, that's, <laughs> um, because that's going to be massively, if I'm then designing a workshop, for example, on the afternoon, the quality is just not going to be there. If I'm coaching somebody, the quality is not going to be there. So that just that knowledge of that one thing is completely game changing. When I finish work now, I'm not exhausted. I used to be like, how do people do, why do people do things on an evening? How do people do things on an evening? And now I can do things on an evening because I've taken this knowledge of, of how my brain works and applied it to how I live and work. But like I say, I'm really fortunate because I've been trained to do that yeah. for a lot of years. And I don't think it's just, it's not just something that you can just do that easily. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why I think things like this, like raising awareness is so important. And even, even for people, like there's lots of people, like I mentioned, my sister got diagnosed with dyspraxia 10 years ago. She was just like, oh, this is mint. I've got this, <laughs> this diagnosis that means, um, well, she didn't think it was mint that she had the condition, but she was like, oh, I'm at uni. I've got a free laptop and they've given me more time in my exams. And that was the main reason why she wanted it because she really struggled in exams. And then she didn't look into it again until she failed her driving test nine times. And I said to her, don't you have this thing? I didn't know much about neurodiversity or what dyspraxia really was. Uh, don't you have this thing called dyspraxia that means it's something to do with your working memory? So would it not be a good idea for you to learn in an automatic car to put less load on your working memory so you don't have all the like gear changing and stuff? And so then she did, she changed to an automatic car and passed first time. So then she started looking into it. So even people who have ADHD, the they don't necessarily have the tools, the time, the inclination to mm -hmm. look into exactly what does this mean and how could I use that knowledge in a, to change my life? Because why, why would everyone just want to <laughs> yeah. do that? Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, potentially at this point, they that isn't even top of their mind because they're just getting through day to day. Exactly, <laughs> that's, yeah. That's what so that was executive function, did you say that mm -hmm. it was called? So what, um, obviously that'll affect people in the workplace mm -hmm. um, as well. It doesn't just mm -hmm. apply to things in personal life, does it? So what sort of things, I suppose, considerations or support uh, maybe better should employers maybe put into place to to help with that? Is it is it a case of like uh, switching tasks? If people, if someone's busy, don't come over and start talking to them because now you've taken the mind elsewhere, like things like that maybe? Yeah, so... Um so again, it's got, it's really individual. So the things that would help one person might not help another person. Um, so, so for me, 
if I could have like a taxi everywhere I went, that not from a work perspective, <laughs> but um, and if I could have a chauffeur, that would really help my life. <laughs> yeah. But for other people, they find driving relaxing because it means they don't have to concentrate on, on other things and think about other things. So it's so on one level, it's about thinking about the individual. So just like how um, you and your colleagues probably all have different preferences in terms of you mentioned to me, oh, sometimes you like to work upstairs, but sometimes you want to come and work downstairs. There'll probably be other people who are like, I hate host desk and I need to have my one desk with all my things set up and my picture of my children and all my things in my um, drawer because that's how they like to work. And that's similar for neurodivergent people. Well, just the same. Um, in, in general, things is like having um, options for people to work in quiet environments, um, things like not interrupting people, things like um, getting in meetings, for example. One really easy thing to do is when you ask a question, say, can you just take a minute to make some notes on that? If you've got an executive function deficit, it's really difficult for you to be asked a question on something, even if you know it really well, and just be able to straight away regurgitate that information. So when I run workshops for ADHD, even when I get people to introduce themselves, I get them to, or so I'll do like an icebreaker, say like, what's your name, what's your role, and what's your favorite food, write it down. Because sometimes, and when I'm in a networking environment, a networking event or an event with lots of people, I'm like really uncomfortable about like, can I trust my brain to say my name? So I'll be like, my name is um, Berka Brighty and I am, uh, what's my job? But whereas, and then you feel silly just writing it down. Like, what is my name? Why am I writing my own name down? But if someone invites you to do it, that's just a little example of things that you can do once you have this understanding of the executive function, you can start looking at the things that you're doing within your business and think, okay, so what can I do to make that better? So time, give them more time, like that example there of in a meeting, ask a question, give people time and the ability to write things down. The ability to write things down also means that people can focus. That's that focus aspect of executive function. The memory, it takes away the problem of the memory. The monitoring of the action, them stopping them getting stuck in their own heads of is what I have in my head going to actually come out of my mouth because quite often it doesn't happen um so it's about having that understanding of things looking at the tasks and just changing them a little bit um taking that wiring into consideration does that make sense yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just I think sometimes I can get, because I understand it quite deeply. Sometimes yeah, it gets no. too tech, I feel like I get too technical. So I just wanted to check. No, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose then uh, from that uh, in, in a broad sense, it's making sure you've sort of got the procedures and policies in place that people feel comfortable enough um, that they can be seen as an individual and, and then focusing on individuals as well because um, I suppose it depends what what sort of um, neurodiverse, I'm not sure what that would be, what is it, Neuro, what ADHD is a type of neurodiversity, yes. right? Yes. So um, what type they have, I suppose, but focusing on an individual um, and then yeah, making them feel comfortable enough that things can be brought up or, and then education as well, just overall and uh, making people aware of this is why people might do things in a certain way or why you should be mm -hmm. considerate and, and things like that. Absolutely, yeah. And what about from a, um, a customer point of view as well? Because it, obviously it doesn't just affect people at work. It doesn't just affect people in their personal lives. So your customers have a chance of being neurodiverse as well. Is the things mm -hmm. companies need to do to make them more engaging for, for neurodiverse people as well? Absolutely, yeah, and that's like such, there's a lot of like people who are like, oh, neurodiversity doesn't really apply to me, I'm a neurotypical business owner. Okay, but if, um, so I think it's one in seven people are neurodivergent, some of your customers are going to be, and if you wanna make as much money as you can, regardless of like the ethics of it or the diversity and inclusion of being like fair to all people, it's, it, Businesses are there to make money. So if you want to increase your chances of that, then you need to be aware of this kind of stuff. So um, there's businesses where it's like, you've got to follow loads of steps to pay. 
I know that user-centered design's a whole thing, but for an ADHD person, I'd rather pay more money and just be able to order something off Amazon than have to like read it and input all these different informations. And then it's gonna, am I gonna order the, choose the right payment op, like the right postage option? And oh, now it's getting delivered to a Hermes place. Where the hell is Hermes? Um, and all the different things. I just wanna know all my details are in Amazon. I'll pay extra for that. So it's just about like simplifying things as much as possible. Or when you send out an email, don't include loads of information that's just not necessary. So a lot of the time, It'll be like, I'll get emails, um, especially government-backed <laughs> schemes and stuff, seem to send you like this massive long thing and they just need one piece of information for you, but you're just like so lost in all the detail that you can't do that. So learning about these conditions will mean that you, your customer can get to give you money <laughs> mm-hmm. without all these different blockers that you as a neurotypical person would just never even necessarily think about. Yeah. So I suppose that comes back to that executive function again, does it? And it's basically the more steps you have to go to, the more pressure or the more things it puts on you to, and it, you know, almost depletes that resource uh, and where it might not affect me, a neurotypical person, it would affect someone of neurodiversity. And also if I'm reserving, so I'm telling you like, oh, I'm reserving my executive function, if I have to pay an extra three pounds to buy something on Amazon where I just literally swipe across my screen or I have to go on like a seven step process on a website and go and get my card and blah, blah, blah. That's going to use up my executive function. So I don't want to do that. So clearly it's, it's very important to consider the differences between a neurotypical and a neurodiverse mind for like many reasons. And if you're somebody that is neurodiverse and are working in a very neurotypically structured workplace, um, it would be easy for you to feel like a bit of an outlier in a way, uh, especially if you don't have that self-awareness yet. And I suppose that could really make an impact on someone's confidence uh, and possibly lead to something called imposter syndrome, which is something that you cover. Uh, and it's something that I'm sure affects many people in business. So could you tell us a bit about what imposter syndrome is? So um, imposter syndrome is, um, so the official definition from the psychologists who came up with the term is this inability to internalise success. So to attribute the success that you've achieved to yourself. So it's this thing of if you've got really... um, risen through the ranks in a company or just was lucky or someone stepped down and they really needed someone to fill that space and I'm not really good enough to be doing this so I'm going to have to engage in all these behaviours to try and make sure no one finds out I'm an imposter. Um, Another way I like to think about it is the difference between who you think you are and who you think you need to be in order to achieve XYZ or in order to deserve the whatever success or position that you're in. So uh, is there a certain place maybe that that comes from? I suppose it's probably different in everybody, isn't it? But um, is there a sort of, yeah, is is, is there a starting point for that with people? So I don't know about in general. I know that it's really, really common for neurodivergent people. So in general, so whether you've got dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, autism, you um, will have grown up in a world where your natural behaviours have are not acceptable and not liked, whereby being yourself, you've been penalised in some sort of way. So you then engage in something called masking. So masking is where you observe the world and say, okay, that's an acceptable behaviour, that's an acceptable behaviour, that's an acceptable behaviour. That's how I'm going to act. And so it's not even a conscious thing. Uh, You just learn from a young age that being yourself is not acceptable. So you need to act like somebody else. That is how you will go through your whole life, usually as a neurodivergent person, unless you make a conscious effort to unmask. So that's something that I work on with clients is about who are you and what is the real what is the real because it's it's tricky you've been doing this stuff your whole life and then you get this diagnosis and you're like oh maybe I am just so sociable because I've observed that as that's what you need to do in order to be successful so you're pretending your whole life to be accepted how can you feel like you deserve your success it's like the two things kind of go hand in hand 
you find reading and writing really difficult, but you're having to pretend you don't because you've got dyslexia. And um, when I was at school, people thought people with dyslexia were thick. But that's not at all the case. My sister is probably the most intelligent person I know. and She's got dyslexia. It's just that it, your ability to read and write doesn't match with your intelligence level. Um, so if you have to pretend all these things, where does the pretending stop? So how can you ever feel like you deserve your success if you're having to hide a massive part of who you are all the time? So, yeah, so imposter syndrome and um, ADHD and new, all different neurodivergences t- tend to go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. I'm yet to coach somebody who does not, who has ADHD and doesn't have imposter syndrome. Right, right. yeah, yeah, that's, you can un- understand, I suppose, where that where that comes from so there's a gap between uh where what you think you are and what you think you need to be how do people sort of bring those two into alignment then what's is there a step one to that i suppose yeah so the um in terms it's so i don't know about a step one Hmm. um but i guess it's what it's about and this is a big it's not just like simple thing it's about understanding your strengths, understanding your weaknesses, becoming comfortable with your weaknesses and playing to your strengths. So I feel like we've grown up in a society um, and I've only ever grown up in the West, so I can't say, but I think it is a, quite a Western thing to you always need to be working on your weaknesses. You always need to be being better at the things you're not good at. I think, yes, you need to improve the things you're not good at if they're having an impact on your a negative impact on your life and those around you. But do you really need to improve in everything that you're not good at? I don't necessarily think you do. You could invest 10 units of energy on improving a weakness, or you could invest those same 10 units of energy into playing to a strength. You're going to get see way, 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 way more results from using those 10 units of energy for a strength. And so once you start stop beating yourself up about the fact I'm not organised, I'm not good at time, um, I'm rubbish at finances, I've got no savings, I'm not a real adult, and actually think, okay, so if you think you're not a real adult, that's causing you, you've got imposter syndrome about even being an adult. What does being an adult mean? Yes, maybe it does mean being organised, maybe it does mean being on time and having savings, but does it also mean having a job that you're good at, which a lot of ADHD people are so creative, such good with, so good with people, are really empathetic, is being an adult having mature friendships that where you're there for each other and you support each other, which again, that empathy and that those people skills and that genuine desire, real strong desire for most ADHD people to connect with people. Um, is that being an adult? Like there's so many things that you're probably doing every day as a person with ADHD who thinks they're a rubbish adult and has imposter syndrome, even from that perspective, that you are good at, but you're just focusing on the things you're bad at. So it's really about bringing into questioning all these things that are making you feel like an imposter. So like one of mine was, I used to do um, this talk, and I've done it for a lot of years, on the neuroscience of change. And I would always like massively overprepare for it. And when I did my coaching qualification, someone asked me about this and we were talking about it and they said, why do you feel like you have to practice so many times? And I said, because if I make a mistake, then people think I don't know what I'm talking about. They said to me, all right, how long is the presentation? I was like, well, 45 minutes. So if you make one mistake in 45 minutes, does that mean you don't know what you're talking about? Obviously, I couldn't say yes. I was like, no. And, and so it's just about bringing those beliefs that are, that what's fueling that imposter syndrome into reality and questioning them and then reminding yourself of that all the time so like I know I make mistakes silly mistakes all the time that really annoy me (laughs) um and are like really stupid things I'm trying to think of there was one last week where I was like oh so stupid probably booking something and then I booked it on the wrong day or at the wrong place but whereas before I knew about ADHD I would have given myself a real hard time like why don't you just concentrate why why are you so stupid whereas um so yeah so I booked this that's a good example I booked a class for my daughter I booked it on the wrong day at the wrong place so then I was like oh so I had to email them and then it was a whole thing but then instead of giving myself a hard time I thought well I'm a fun mum and I'm really caring 
because of having that understanding and being more focused on the reasons why I'm a good mum rather than you're a really rubbish mum because you've booked this wrong class on the wrong day at the wrong place for your daughter. So that's, I think, is a really important first, if there was a first step, that would be my yeah. Uh, recommendation. Yeah, yeah. No, great. I think that that's an important point as well, isn't it? Like, you, you don't have to be amazing at everything. You can be bad at some stuff. Like, Absolutely. Even when, you know, if you think about employing people at a company, like, if you hire somebody to be in finance, you don't need them to be an absolute wizard writing because that's why you've got the people who work on the content team or, mm-hmm. or something like that, isn't it? Absolutely. So there's a... So then from maybe an employer point of view or, or just a leadership point mm-hmm. of view, I suppose, somebody with imposter syndrome, I would assume, wouldn't necessarily feel confident enough to say, I have imposter syndrome. Um, what can you maybe do to either make people feel more confident in themselves to either bring it up or just maybe feel a bit more accepted so that maybe don't feel it in the first place? Or So the first thing... and. Like, so I often get hired by businesses is from like a spreading awareness perspective. So I love the fact now that there's a lot of businesses who are incorporating things like imposter syndrome on leadership programs from that perspective of if you're a leader, it's more so um, imposter syndrome is more prevalent in successful people. So you're more likely if you're in a senior position to have imposter syndrome. Um, So a lot of people who are in leadership positions don't feel like they really deserve to be there. So by doing things like including it in leadership programs, it then brings it to the fore. It also means that, so I've been on programs before where people have said to like stayed on the call or stayed behind at the end and said like, I want to cry. I've, I feel exactly all these feelings and I didn't know what it was. And I just thought that that was like I was the only person who felt like a fraud. Um, and so that education is really important. Um, but then in terms of, in a, from a general sense of just people bringing all these things to the fore about mental health issues and neurodiversity, um, imposter syndrome is creating an environment of psychological safety. So where people do feel like they can bring their full selves to work and they're not going to be penalised. Because like you say, if I feel like an imposter, I'm not going to stand up and say, I feel like an imposter. Because <laughs> then I'm going to blow my own cover that I'm actually, I'm an imposter. Um, but by having these types of these conversations, by creating those really comfortable environments, um, by even just like, so some businesses that I work with, they just like have little chats on there. Like, um, I don't use chat functions on like um, teams and stuff, but they have different different topics that you can talk about I don't know but people will say to me oh yeah there was a thing on one of our teams where people were talking about imposter syndrome and even just bringing that like I think that's amazing I can't imagine that would have happened before Covid Mm. which I think has been made a massive shift um so yeah even just just things like that bringing it into awareness and creating psychological safety are really important yeah and and it seems like making sure that it's a constant process as well because uh, I imagine it's one of these things that, well, either you bring on somebody new and they feel like an imposter or um, there might be just different stages in which mm-hmm. you get, whether you get promoted, you take on a new project or anything like that where you didn't feel like an imposter and now you think, oh no, <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> um, so that sort of making it a constant process of uh, information sharing, I suppose, around mm-hmm. around it. Yeah, so during times of change is when you're most likely to experience it because of what you just say there. If you're in a job where you're comfortable with it, you've been doing it for a few years, but then you change to do something else and you're like, oh, no, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be get a promotion. I shouldn't be a leader, whatever the whatever the situation is. That's when you're most likely to experience it. So by including conversations around imposter syndrome in onboarding or in like starter kits or in your first one to one with your manager, things like that can make a massive difference. Mm, yeah and um you you mentioned the pandemic there um, and obviously there's been a lot of change post pandemic um in well in so many areas but particularly in people mm-hmm. um so how how has things changed since then i suppose um this might be a good point to touch on work that workplace resilience you're talking about mm-hmm. as well because i think as you said happened to yourself pandemic burnout like mm-hmm. I feel like that just massively spiked as well didn't mm-hmm. it so oh, what's absolutely. how did that affect things 
Um, so I think that, I think it definitely, so mental health problems and stuff through COVID, that was a massive problem. But one of the big things I think it did from a really positive perspective was you couldn't have this attitude of you need to leave your home life at home because you've, you've got a camera into my lounge. How? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. I think the whole concept of, oh, you've got to leave your home life at home is absolutely ridiculous because you're a person. You can't just leave your home life at home anyway. But I think the fact that people were seeing the things that people were dealing with every day of disabled relatives, sick kids. If you don't have children, like before I had children, I didn't understand why my colleagues who had children on the lunch breaks would be like calling the childminder. I'd be like, but they're with a childminder, surely they're safe. You must know that. Or why they never wanted to go out for drinks on a Friday. Like now there's not many people who I'd rather spend time with that have not been my children all week than my children. It's very difficult to have that level of empathy if you don't see the realities. And I think COVID gave us that opportunity to see the realities of what everyone, everyone's lives, you're supposed to just like pretend your life's not happening, but we couldn't do that for a, a 18 months or however long. So I think that was really valuable. It also made everyone be like that whole like thing of, oh, there's like far too much going on. You could admit that for the first time ever of like, this is a completely crazy situation that the whole world's in. We can all admit that we have no idea what's going on and what the what, <laughs> what on earth. And that then started all of these conversations. Um, so I think from a positive perspective, that that's all really good. I think also though what it did is it pushed people to the limit. And once you've gone to that limit, it's really difficult to come back. So if you're... I can barely write an email when I'm looking after my daughter. Never mind. I don't know how I was on maternity leave at the time. And I do not genuinely don't know how people were looking after children and doing full time jobs. It blows my mind. I, I would have been definitely been sectioned if I'd have had to do that. Um, and so once you get to that push to that level, you've gone above like a baseline it's really hard to get back below that baseline so it only takes little things to then make people much more stressed um and so I think that that's been something where now even more than ever this resilience training and this understanding of psychology is now more important um and I think people are recognizing that people are people and not resources and so if you're going to invest money in like the best technology and the best printers that's only going to be affect your business like a tiny amount the people is where you where you're going to make the biggest gains by having people being really productive having great people having people who want to stay and having people who are loyal and engaged and by helping them be more resilient you can achieve all those things mm. so it's clearly a lot of benefits both to the individual of building this resilience but also to the company to the employer of having sort of resilient staff mm -hmm. um so uh you mentioned at the beginning about the the model um mm -hmm. the real resilience model yeah that real called? workplace so it's called the brighty people real workplace resilience yeah, model i need to work on it <laughs> i said being concise is not one of my strengths <laughs> yes that is it. yeah it rolls off the tongue <laughs> just um, just like that <laughs> so could you talk us through that a bit and how, how that would work in improving resilience yeah, so it's so it's something that I talk about a lot in leadership programs, and um, you can look at it from different perspectives. Um, in terms of within a business, you can go through the different stages. So you can look at the working the start of the model is about working practices, and so you can go through that list of things like psychological safety, diversity, and inclusion, and you can look and think what are we doing within each of those areas. Um, then there's the self-care aspect to it, which I think a lot of businesses, it's a place where they'll start. So have we got, do we doing yoga for people? Are we giving people enough of a lunch break? Do people have um, a, a employee um, a mental health line that they can call? I think businesses are getting quite good at the self-care stuff. Self-awareness, um, people, businesses can do stuff like helping people through things like coaching, using psychometrics to help people bring... Um, understand themselves better um and then the mindset stuff 
um, again, fostering a culture of psychological safety um, helps to bring things to the fore. So if you have things like people, so self-compassion is one where people are not very self-compassionate a lot of the time. If they make a mistake, they really beat themselves up. It's about in those situations when people are beating themselves up, just having a conversation and understanding like why you're giving yourself such a hard time about this. This is an opportunity to then tie in together self-compassion with growth mindset. Okay, you've made a mistake, not great, but be self-compassionate with yourself. This is an opportunity for growth. That's then the growth mindset stuff. And then the internal, external locus of control stuff, you can bring into that as well of like, what can you do about it? What has happened and how can you now move forward with this? So it's just about being mindful, I think, with a lot of things and having that awareness. Because like I thought, as a person I think is quite informed, that resilience was about self-care and keeping yourself healthy was about exercise and eating well and making talking about your feelings. That's not the whole story. So it's the awareness is where it starts. So you can then make the changes for the new business. Yeah, but uh, awareness has been a theme throughout all of it, I think, hasn't it? Of, uh, Absolutely. That's the, the key thing, I think, to take away from this is if you can build up your sort of awareness, then... That's by using coaching. The start. By <laughs> using, the best way. By using coaching. So... Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there's still so many avenues, I suppose, we could go down, but I'm conscious we've taken a lot of your time already. Um, so if if somebody did want to get in touch about some coaching, because they are now aware of these <laughs> of these issues, how could how could people find you? Um, so a few different ways. So LinkedIn, um, I am the only Becca Brighty on uh, LinkedIn. Um, my website, which is brightypeople.com, um, they're probably the two easiest ways. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you very much for, for joining us on this. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's still lots more people can learn and should learn. <laughs> um, and, Could yeah. be here all day. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe we will be after yes. this. Who knows? All right. Thank okay, you very well, much. Thanks for your time. If you're interested in finding out more information on any of the topics discussed in this episode, you can head to Umi's SatNav. There you can find a range of information, tools and resources, not only on well-being, but also a range of other topics that will help you and your business to go further. So to access SatNav and sign up for free, head to weareumi.co.uk forward slash SatNav. <laughs>